You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's go ahead and get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for gathering us this morning. Lord, help our hearts to not take for granted this opportunity, uh, which is denied so many people for often very good reasons. And so, Lord, as we continue to sojourn through this time of COVID, that we would cling to the promises declared in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll be very happy to know we're going to cover two verses today. Um, but they're really good verses. And uh, after last week, which is a little bit depressing, it's, it's good to have uh, something a little bit more positive to talk about. So I introduced Jude's letter last week, and this week I'm going to allow Jude to introduce his letter. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul encourages... That is really loud, isn't it? It is really loud, and I'm kind of a projector. Hey, Malones. How are you? All right, let's see here. Should we turn it all the way up in the nave and down in here? I did, you know, we could actually, how's that? Hello? Is that better? No? Yeah. We can actually um, pipe the sound into the nave and vice versa. So, Well, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul encourages Timothy to allow others to see his progress. I talked a little bit about that when we were talking about covid uh, what a strange little passage where Paul is telling Timothy, who's a pastor, let your congregation see your progress. Now, nobody wants anyone to see that because we want everyone to think that we've got it all together and that we're a finished product. And of course, we have little areas that need polishing, but by and large, we're exactly where we ought to be in our lives. Uh, but the truth of the matter is we're not. And so it uh, is even worse for a pastor uh, to be told, hey, let your congregation see your progress, because that preys on all of our insecurities as pastors, because we want to be the person for you, uh, spiritually speaking, and to acknowledge our deficiencies or any mistakes is very difficult for us. But uh, as this is one of those moments where I hope you can see my progress. Uh, as I was teaching last week, in the back of my mind, uh, I realized that I was in a place of uncertainty. And so this past week, I spent a good bit of time looking into the authorship of the epistle of Jude. Uh, I said last week that I didn't think that Jude was the brother of Jesus, the Jude that's writing here. Uh, but now I'm not so sure that he isn't Jesus' brother. Uh, I'm not settled on the authorship, uh, nor do I think it ultimately matters, as the authorship is primarily of divine origin. But when you read a book uh, of the Bible, or something like the Epistle Jude here, uh, it ought to stop you and cause you to think. Right? Who, who is this person writing? Because even though we believe that the Holy Spirit is writing what we're reading today, uh, the personality of the human author comes out. And so when you read Paul, you can, uh, if you're a student of the Bible and you're reading your Bible, uh, you could, I could probably read a passage to you and you say, well, that sounds like Paul. Uh, almost in the same way as, you know, when you say something to your children and you realize, oh my goodness, I sound like my mother. Right? Uh, you ought to be able to recognize certain voices in the Bible. And so uh, at an ultimate level, it may not matter who this Jude was, uh, but it, it does matter. 
And uh, so it caused me to stop and to go back and, and to figure out, well, who is this Jude? Uh, some of the strongest arguments that this Jude was the brother of Jesus come from the early church fathers, Tertullian and Origen, who refer to Judas as an apostle and the brother of Jesus. And so you have uh, the, the generations after the apostles very early in, on in the church saying that Jude is uh, the brother of Jesus and an apostle. Now, I do want to stop here uh, because uh, most of us probably haven't stopped to think, what makes an apostle an apostle? There's actually, there's a, it, it never says in the New Testament, in order to be an apostle, this is what qualifies you to be an apostle. But it is there. You just kind of have to listen for it. Anytime an apostle qualifies themselves, what is the qualification to be an apostle? You have to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. Very good. Extra wafer for you when we get there, Clark. Uh, although the collar makes it you a cheat. Um, that's right, a witness to the resurrected Jesus. So that's why, remember when Jesus in John's Gospel comes into the upper room and everybody's there, but then he comes back another week because there was somebody not there. Who was not there? Thomas, right? So why did Jesus come? Did Jesus come and say, hey, I forgot to tell you something. No, he came back so that Thomas himself could be an eyewitness to him. Now, what about the apostle Paul? He's an apostle. The right, right, the road to Damascus. Uh, but he also appeared to me one untimely born. So he was one who was a witness to the resurrection of uh, the resurrected Jesus Christ as well. And so uh, I understand that in some traditions, uh, you know, you'll you'll be driving along the highway and all of a sudden you'll see on the church marquee, Pastor the Apostle. Andrew Pearson, right? Um, well, that office doesn't exist anymore. Um, but at the same time, there is the idea of the apostolic message that's been given to us, and that's what we proclaim and what Jude is talking about here, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And so the idea of Jude being an apostle is an important one uh, for us to grapple with. Uh, so we're left with two options. Uh, Jude is the son of James, one of the 12 that we find in Luke chapter 6, verse 16, who asked Jesus a question in the upper room in John's gospel in chapter 14, verse 22, and is sometimes called Thaddeus, Mark 3:18, or the second option, he's Jesus' brother, thereby the brother of James. So why then does Judas say that he is the brother of James and not the brother of Jesus in his introduction. Let me just read to you the first two verses that we're going to get to today. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I mean, if I'm writing a letter to the church and there's no specific group that he seems to be writing to, but just the church at large, and this letter was widespread uh, in the early church and was off and was appealed to uh, more than you would think it would be because it's such a small letter, uh, but the early church fathers really liked it a lot and found its way into the life of the church. Uh, but if I'm writing a letter to Christians and I'm the brother of Jesus, I think I'd say, 
a brother of Jesus and James. Right? I, I, that's, that's what I would do. So sometimes there's an argument that because he didn't say that, it means that he's not uh, the Jude that is Jesus' brother. Well, then I got to thinking and reading, and I thought, well, if he is Jude the brother of James, there's a really good reason why he doesn't claim to be the brother of Jesus, because of an interaction that he had with Jesus early on in Jesus' ministry. I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 3. See, the Bible's like a little treasure trove. You, you get to look around and find all these things that help everything else connect. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to Jesus and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So I wonder if this is Jude, the brother of Jesus, if this story, because early on Jesus' family, with maybe the exception of Mary, wasn't exactly sure what to think of Jesus in this, this role that, uh, that he was uh, taking on in his life. And so as Jude writes this, if he's not in the back of his mind thinking, actually being the biological half-brother of Jesus earns me no credibility when it comes to the Christian faith. Because faith is not the product of genetics. It's not the product of genes. Uh, I was talking uh, to someone uh, who is a very committed Christian, and uh, their husband uh, is not, and in fact is very open about their hostility toward the Christian faith. And we were engaged in a conversation, and, and I said, well, what do you think will happen to you when, when you die? And he said, well, I'll just ride her coattails into heaven. That doesn't work. <laughs> uh, there's no riding of coattails into heaven. There's only, uh, uh, if there is anything like that, it's, it's Jesus' coattails into heaven. Um, but there is no sense in, in, in the New Testament that being married to a Christian, being related to a Christian, in any way secures your salvation. Now, Paul does talk about elsewhere that, that there is a sense in which the spouse, an unbelieving spouse of a believing spouse, does receive collateral blessing just by being married to a Christian. Uh, but there's no indication, as you read the totality of it, that that ensures salvation. And so it may be that Jude here is saying, I don't want anyone to think that I have any authority because I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I want people to know that what? I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what I am, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, at some level, again, it may be an academic question, uh, but it's something that we should at least ponder as readers of this letter. Now, there are some things that we can definitively know about the writer Jude. He's a caring, loving pastor who is committed to Jesus Christ and the ministry entrusted to him. He takes his work seriously. Moreover, he understands what it means to be in Christ. Uh, that's a phrase that gets 
thrown around a lot in the church to be in Christ. And we're going to look a little bit about what that means because it's of ultimate importance to us as Christians. Uh, But Jude understands what it means to be in Christ. So going back to his greeting, he says that he's a servant of Jesus Christ or could easily be translated a slave of Jesus Christ. If you looked at the King James Version, it would say slave. Uh, Elsewhere, you might find bond servant. Uh, but that's what, how Jude sees himself, a slave of Jesus Christ. And this is uh, also, you know, his, his use of um, the Bessianic title of Jesus, not just a slave of Jesus, not a brother of Jesus, uh, but of Jesus Christ, Christ meaning the Messiah. Uh, you know, Jesus' last name is not Christ. Um, uh, it's that's a title that has been given to him that he is the Christ. Remember Peter at Caesarea Philippi, where there they are surrounded by a pagan resort community. Uh, and uh, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the one that the Bible promises is going to come into the world and save his people. And so Jude here introduces an important theme in his letter, what it means to be a Christian. He knows Jesus as Lord and Savior, as Lord, that he's a slave of Jesus, a servant of Jesus. So he understands Jesus as Lord and the authority that Jesus has over his life and the demand that Jesus makes that his life be placed under his lordship. And then secondly, the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who came and saved him from sin and death. Now, some in the church throughout the years, and this is going to come into this letter, have attempted to bifurcate Jesus and to say, I'm okay with Jesus as Messiah, but we're going to put this lordship thing over to the side. You cannot know Jesus as Savior without knowing him as Lord. It's not a pick and choose sort of thing. It's it's to know Jesus in his totality uh, for who he is and what he's come to do. And how uh, turning to him for salvation, we submit ourselves and put ourselves under his authority. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that uh, we're always going to like what he says It doesn't mean that we're not always going to struggle uh, with uh, his call upon our lives. But the word here that Jude uses, a bondservant, a slave, it means I belong to him. I have no identity apart from him. He's my master. He's my life. He's my everything. And I live to serve him. Now, this has crept into the church in Jude's day, but certainly has crept into our church as well. Now, this is not so much of an issue in Anglicanism where we're not sure whether or not Jesus is Savior or Lord, but out of revivalism, where the idea is that if you go down front and you say the sinner's prayer, you're in. You're in. And then you go your own way and it makes no difference in your life. I grew up tangentially in that tradition. I grew up as an Anglican in the Episcopal Church. Uh, But my mother's extended family came from a very strong revivalist 
tradition. And I spent so much time with them that that obviously rubbed off on me. And so there was always a, a call to come into a relationship with Jesus, but there was also a constant call of rededicating yourself to Jesus. And if I got paid by the rededication, I wouldn't be standing here today. I'd be broadcasting from a beach somewhere and, uh, and, and waving to y'all uh, from Tahiti. Uh, but there's a part of that that there's nothing wrong with that, and that's right. Uh, but at the same time, it almost makes it sound as if your relationship with God has to do with what you've done. Because I've said this prayer, I'm in with God. Because I've rededicated myself, I know that I'm okay with God. One of uh, my family members, I remember saying to me one time when I was concerned about their own spiritual well-being, said, I saw your Uncle Fred go down to the altar at a Wednesday night service in 1963 at the downtown Baptist church. So I know he's okay. Well, my Uncle Fred is a terrible man. And, uh, and, and by that, I mean... Uh, it's pretty clear that he may have gone down uh, to the altar, uh, but I don't know that it made any difference in his life. And I don't mean morally like he left there and all of a sudden he was feeding the homeless, but, but no sense of conviction over I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and woe be unto me. Um, uh, another uh, illustration of this is... Um, uh, there came through our town, and they came, it was the hot thing at one point in time, and I've talked about it any number of times. It was a drama that would visit churches called uh, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Should give you an indicator of what's going to happen now. And uh, what they did was the drama troupe would come in, and they had an elaborate set and elaborate costumes, and they would do these vignettes, like two teenagers driving in a car. One's a Christian, and when uh, they stand, they get in a car crash, and the Christian gets ushered into heaven by angels with harps, and then the other teenager is not a Christian, and so uh, the devil comes out and his demons and comes and pulls them into these flames uh, stage left. And uh, this goes on for about an hour and a half, two hours. And at the end, the pastor gets up and says, this is really big in Assemblies of God churches, uh, gets up and says, well, one day you're going to die, and will you choose Heaven's Gates or Hell's Flames? Well, there's a stampede uh, to come down front. And I, I remember my stepbrother actually jumping over the pew to get down front. Uh, but talking to him later on, he said, oh, I wasn't afraid of sinning. I was afraid of burning. Right? That wasn't a supernatural spiritual decision, was it? Would you like to burn with these little impish guys over here? Or would you like to be carried away into heaven with these nice looking angels with harps? That's not a spiritual decision. That's just it's common sense. It's common sense. And so even in our church today, there's this idea that, well, you can have Jesus as your savior and have some sort of understanding of, of his saving you, but you really don't need to worry about what it means to place your life under him. And, and that's what was missing in, in that sort of theological framework that put together heaven's gates and hell's flames. Now, that's not to say that maybe God did use that in some people's lives. Uh, that that the person who went down front and some of us in this room may be in that boat where we've made our way down front and we prayed, God, take my life. At some point, I hope all of you uh, have said that. Uh, but it wasn't just God save me from the flames of hell, but God save me a sinner. 
have mercy on me. Change my life. I, I don't like who I am. I don't want to be who I am. I want you to come and transform me. And I want to be reconciled to my heavenly father by your cross and by your resurrection. And so many might respond emotionally to the call to know Jesus as Savior. But if we're only presenting Jesus as Savior and not as Lord, we're only presenting half of Jesus, which means we're not presenting the real person. Now, we'll get to more on this and how this manifested itself in the life of Jude's church when we get to verses 3 and 4 in 2021, uh, because we're interviewing Matt Schneider next week. He's a servant of Jesus Christ, a bondservant, a slave, but Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I know Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And now to those I'm writing to, those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful little sentence that I hope uh, all of y'all will either commit it to memory uh, or put up on your bathroom mirror, that you're called, beloved in God, and kept for Jesus. The idea of calling is key. Jude writes to those who are called, not those who have committed themselves to Jesus, though that's a very important thing to do, but those whom God has called into a relationship with him. This is not Calvin. Uh, this is not um, uh, five-point Calvinism, uh, but it's the testimony of Scripture. I would refer you back, uh, not that long ago I did a series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we spent a lot of time on the doctrine of election, God's efficacious call, that those he calls, he saves. Right, so if God has called you into a relationship with you, you belong to him. But I want to go back to um, hear how Paul elaborates on what Jude is saying here in one word by Paul, who likes to use lots of words. Uh, he, he's a real preacher uh, here in Ephesians chapter one. And I'm going to read uh, a good bit of it, beginning with the third verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual benediction in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first, hope, first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, believe it or not, I think that Jude in one sentence is actually saying what it took almost an an entire chapter uh, for Paul to say, that you're called. Do you understand that? From the very foundations of the earth, God set his hand upon you, you're mine. And he calls us. There's a myth, I think, that that circulates around in Christian circles. Um, And of course, the problem with it is there's always a look. What makes all that I'm talking about and all that Jude is talking about difficult is that there's always a little bit of truth in all of it, right? I I learned very early on that if you want to make a lie really good, make it 70% true, and then it's believable. And so there is a sense in which we have people that are seeking out God, that are interested in God. that's That's a truth. But actually, the posture of the world, the posture of the person who doesn't know Jesus is not to seek him out, but actually to go in the other direction. The only way that we're able to seek God is that if he intervenes in our lives and he actually awakens us to see our need of him, he calls us. He's the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go out and find the one that's lost. All right, so we're the one that's lost. So when we say, well, I found Jesus, Makes it sound like Jesus is the one that was lost. No, he finds us and he calls us. Andrew, come unto me. Come here. And he's the one by his spirit that enables us to respond to that call. And those he calls, he calls beloved. Not beloved because they have made the right decision to follow him, but beloved because he set his love upon them first. First John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. Uh, I want to read uh, from uh, also John, uh, the same, same one who just wrote that. Uh, John chapter one, we're going to get it during the Christmas season. Um, But this is often, even though it's one of the most famous Bible passages, what John writes is lost on us. First John, beginning with the ninth verse. The true light, that's Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him, right? Because the world's in darkness. The world doesn't know who he is. He was sent into the world and yet the response was to get rid of him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I want to stop there because some of you might say, okay, well, Andrew, it sounds to me that John is saying that if you're called, it's because you believed in the first place. But then hear how John finishes his sentence. Who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, will of man, but of God. Born, not of blood, right? So it's not, um, Jesus is my brother, or I had a really devout mom. I mean, it's so funny to me, over in England, this would happen all the time. It doesn't happen as much here. Uh, but in England, the church hierarchy is pretty set in stone. And, uh, and, and a lot of the positions in the hierarchy are what are called crown appointments. Elizabeth II actually uh, signs off on them. 
And uh, when I would uh, was when I was on the golf team at Oxford, I would often play with these guys who were much older than I was. And when they found out I was going into the ministry, immediately they would say something like, "Well, my uncle is the archdeacon of Barnstable." They would just throw that out there. I want you to know that that my and I mean here around here sometimes people say, "Well, you know that cabin at Camp McDowell? That's named after my grandfather." Well, John says that doesn't matter amount to a hill of beans. It just it just doesn't in the grand scheme of things. So not of I mean blood doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. You're not born of blood to become a Christian, nor of the will of the flesh. That is, you decide for yourself. You know what? I'm going to be a Christian, but actually God's intervention from the outside. You can't will your own self into the kingdom of heaven, nor of the will of man. And that is somebody pushing you into it as well. Um, I I think that what John is getting out at here are the number of people who have come, uh, and this was true uh, in Jesus' day, uh, when it came to being God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, the the Jewish people, the Hebrews, uh, and uh, that people would say, well, this is kind of a blood plus the will of man. Uh, I know that I'm good with God because I was born into the people of Israel. And you would have religious leaders of the day who would say, you're fine because of this. And then what does John the Baptist say? Don't say that you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you that God can take these rocks and turn them into children of Abraham. Right? Saying what? You have to have a direct personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no uh, intermediary there between the two of them. And even today, I think that sometimes people will uh, give people a false hope about where their standing is with God. Um, I was talking to someone uh, not that long ago who uh, was ailing, and I asked them, they, they weren't near death or anything, but I, I was talking, and I said, well, why do you think that you're going, I said, tell me what you think, what you're thinking spiritually about all of this while you contemplate your own death. And they said, well, uh, you know, I've gone to church my whole life. Bishop Carpenter confirmed me. Uh, That's always a big one. And um, his big hands and his voice, they always talk about that. And, um, and, And I just hope that I'm deserving. I just hope that I'm deserving. You know, as if their whole life has been an attempt to accumulate all of these spiritual deeds and I could tell in speaking with this person that they, are, they were really hoping that I would affirm that for them. You are deserving. You are going to be all right. Now, what I said to them was not disturbing. Uh, I hope it disturbed them at some level, but ultimately is of, of great comfort. But you're not deserving. For the wages of sin is death. What you deserve is death. But what you have is the riches of Jesus Christ and his mercy. And so if you were to get into heaven, if you were to have a relationship with God, it comes by him and only through him, only by mercy, only by grace are you saved. And only by those things may you enter into a relationship with God. And so it would behoove us, uh, as Jude is doing here, that anybody who thinks that they can get in on any of these things that John talks about in chapter one, that we would say, no, God does all that. That God does all that. And you're his beloved. You're his beloved. 
He's called you, and he's, you're beloved by him. Uh, and Romans chapter 8 is also a good place to look um, uh, uh, when it comes to um, talking about what we just did, about being uh, called and, and beloved, but I'm going to move forward. Well, beloved by whom? Makes a difference. God the Father, that's who. It is a specific kind of relationship, father to daughter, father to son. It's not a nebulous, generalistic love that God has for his people, but a specific and individual love that he has for each and every single one of us. As mentioned before, we related to God individually and corporately as his people, but we must relate to him personally in order that we might be related to him corporately. right? So one of the first blessings that God gives us when we come into a relationship with him, one another. Right? All of a sudden, now we have brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the only way that we're able to relate to one another as brothers and sisters is if we've already related to him and know him as our heavenly father. Now, this seems to be less of a deal today than it was, say, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, but whenever I would talk about God as Father, I would always have to qualify it because uh, there's no doubt that many of us, and myself included, uh, grew up either without a father or our father was a negative figure in our lives. And so to think of God as Father for some people is very, very difficult to do. Now, for me... Um, I didn't really grow up with a dad. Um, my dad was not in the picture. Uh, my mom had been married several times, and, and it just was a mess. Um, but that was actually one of the most appealing things to me about Christianity is that I had a heavenly father. And because I had a heavenly father, it actually helped me to deal with the bad father figures in my life. There was actually some redemption there uh, because of that. And so... If you did have a bad experience with your dad, I'm very sorry. And, and that's, that's heartbreaking and heart-wrenching because what we learn about God, we so often learn from our parents, the good and the bad. And yet I, I pray that God's able to redeem that. And in spite of the fact that you had a bad relationship with your father, that you have a heavenly father with whom you have a perfect relationship. And his disposition to you is to call you his beloved son or daughter. He loves you. He loves you. And, he, and he's the dad that, that all of us dads aspire to be and never will be. Uh, and he's certainly the, the heavenly dad uh, that can redeem uh, all of our broken relationships here on earth. But the reason the Bible uses this language of father is it's relational, much more so than, than parent. Uh, I have a very close friend who's a lawyer, and he refers to his children as his issue which is the legal term. Um, it's not very affectionate. <laughs> Come here, my issue. Um, you know, Merry Christmas, issue. Um, Merry Christmas, my daughter. Merry Christmas, my son. Uh, Come to me, my daughter. Come to me, my son. Uh, it, so the Bible isn't going to say uh, heavenly court-appointed conservator and guardian. Uh, heavenly parental figure. Uh, but no, heavenly Father. We're a family. We're a family. And what does God promise that he will do when you are called and beloved? 
He promises, this is a great word, and Jude uses it again at the end, as Don Menendez pointed out last week. He promises to keep you. This is the doctrinal truth that is often called the perseverance of the saints. God gives perseverance to his children. They are not his children because they persevere. They persevere because they are his children. God keeps us. Of course, we must cling to Jesus. But if called and beloved by him, no one can snatch us out of his hand, as he says in John chapter 10. Which is, anytime you're worried, I feel like I'm falling away from the Lord, go read John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And all that the Father gives me, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. The way that God holds on to us um, is kind of like this. When I was a little boy, uh, my grandfather would take me for long walks uh, through the woods. There were lots of horse trails, um, and we would go for walks, and we would just talk about this, that, and the other. And I can still remember being very little, and um, I would take hold of his hand, but of course along the way with the rocks and the roots and things like that, and being a little boy, I'd, I'd fall uh, multiple times. And I remember vividly my grandfather finally looking down at me one day, and he said, you know, this would work a whole lot better if I held on to you. Of course, I wanted to cling to him. I wanted to hold his hand. But ultimately, what is going to keep me from falling and stumbling is if he holds on to me. And even if I lose my grip, if he's got a hold of me, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And so this beautiful word here that Jesus, that that God keeps you. He keeps you. So it's not as if, okay, you come into a relationship, you're called, you're beloved. I'll see you in heaven. Uh, but actually, uh, there's constant intervention in your life and in this relationship where God is keeping you and, and nudging you. And I, I mean, really taking on the role of a parent. I was talking to someone the other day uh, who has a child in their early mid-20s. And uh, and they uh, said, well, I really don't like this girl that, that my son is is dating. And I said, have you told him that? And she said, no, of course not. Uh, and I was like, that's right, because <laughs> if you tell him that, he's going to marry her. Um, and uh, uh, but, and I, I want, you know, if that's not how God actually deals with us, that, that he knows us so well and, and through and through that the way that he operates and moves in our lives is that he opens our eyes to his truth when we open his word. Right. And isn't that funny how you know, you'll read a Bible passage and it'll speak to you in a completely different way than it might have done before. Or what it's saying to you is different than what it's saying to someone else. Not contradictory, uh, but the things that jump off the page to you are different than the things that jump off the page to other people. Uh, but that God is intentional and he's keeping you. And what he's keeping you for is until Jesus returns or he keeps you at your death and he keeps you into the next life. That's the promise. So when you're lying on your deathbed, or when you see him returning on the clouds, lo, he comes with clouds descending. Uh, you can say, he kept me. He kept his promise. And he kept me, his son, his daughter. And then finally, uh, this is what's promised. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy Peace and love be multiplied to you. Now, these are very important words because we need to keep these in mind as we go through some very difficult passages where it sounds like Jude is ready to, you know, really kneecap them. Uh, but 
But what he's praying for is not militancy, not uh, righteous indignation, uh, but may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you because those are marks of the Christian life. That when Jesus intervenes in our lives, when he calls us, when we follow after him as Lord and, and take him as our Savior, we experience mercy, peace, and love which the world cannot offer. That's the gift that God gives. I don't know about you, but during COVID, uh, I've been thinking a little bit more about this kind of stuff. Like, for some reason, COVID has allowed me to see a little bit more of God's mercy. And in fact, this year, I'm a little bit more excited about Christmas than I, I normally would be. And the things like to hear my children talk about gifts is totally different. And the things they're asking for this year are a little bit different. I mean, some of the stuff I know is going to go to donations in a year's worth, a year's time. But, uh, but some of the things they actually, I'll make sure nobody's here because, so one of my daughters has asked for. Um, I have to be careful because she might end up listening to this. She's asked for something. I'm just going to say it. She's never going to listen to anything I say. Um, She's 11 years old, and she asked for a cheval mirror. Do you know what a cheval mirror is? They're those big, full-length mirrors that have a pedestal on them that no one has anymore because they're in the way. Uh, And she said, that's that's what I want. And I'd like to say, well, my 11-year-old is just just like me and uh, and likes things like that. But I really think that COVID has made her stop and think, you know, I actually appreciate beauty. I don't want something that's just functional. I want something that looks nice. And so she's getting an antique uh, cheval mirror uh, for, for Christmas. And so when I think about my relationship with the Lord during COVID, what is accentuated to me by all of the stuff that we've been dealing with is the mercy of God, the peace of God, and the love of God, which is being made manifest even as things are kind of falling around about our ears. And, and Jude wants us to know, and for the church, churches that he's writing to to know, that even in the midst of all this turmoil and all of this spiritual struggle, this is what we cling to. Mercy, peace, and love. That's what the Christian life is about, and that's what Jesus offers to the world. Okay, any questions, comments, or concerns? I promise we're going to go more quickly um, uh, through uh, through this, but I, I thought it was good to, to lay all that out as we head into the difficult bits. Mm. Mary Kay. Mm. Yeah, the, the publican, um, uh, the, the tax collector in the temple, um, God be merciful upon me, a sinner, the one that went down justified. Yeah, it's you really don't understand the mercy of God until you understand yourself as a sinner. Like if you think that you're not all that bad, then you don't need all that great a savior, right? You just need someone to kind of help you along. But if you know that you're in the pit and it takes a real rescue mission to get you out uh, and not just a helping hand. Yes, Catherine. Uh, I'm glad you covered this about James and uh, Jude. Uh, whether I know he is the brother of Jesus. Because this week I was listening to John MacArthur preach mm-hmm. and he said that uh, you know, I've always been of the opinion 
Yeah, it's um, it really is. Uh, oh, I'd love for you to write a letter to John Coffin. There are a couple. There are a couple postscripts I can add if you've got the space on your stationery, Catherine. But um, yeah, it, it's. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I understand that it, we can get a little too academic about it, but it, it's so interesting and edifying to to think through the implications of who it is. And I realize that elsewhere in the letter, he appeals to the to what the apostles have taught you, as if he's not one. Um, so. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll find out one day. We'll find out one day. But nobody's salvation is in jeopardy, even John MacArthur's, if you, if you, if you think that Jude is the brother of Jesus or not. Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we go uh, our own ways uh, out into the world or as we gather around your word in worship, uh, we pray that the truth of your word would sink down deep in our hearts. And Lord, that we would know uh, that we are called, beloved, and kept for the Lord Jesus, and that you might increase in us love, mercy, and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.